Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. Folks, what I want to talk to you about, we've been, Pastor Andreas has been covering two main themes over the past few weeks. We started out the year talking about God's goodness, uh, a desire for God's goodness, for His glory to be seen, that God's desiring to, to show us greater levels and for us to enter into and experience greater levels of His goodness. The other thing that Pastor Andreas has been talking to us about recently is faith. How to lay hold of those things and bring them into the, into the natural realm. I've been challenged of late in terms of the way in which I pray concerning some of these things. And I wanted to share some of my thoughts with you today. Because you know folks, it's one thing to talk about God's glory. And yes, wonderful, God wants to reveal His glory and God wants to show us new things. It's great to talk about those things. How do we take that kind of message and make make it life and light. How do we take it and make it real, tangible, bring it into the reality of our everyday life? I want to start by just reiterating a principle that, that I believe to be true. And that is that God's goodness, God's kingdom, God's glory, God's blessing are all found or, or, or all an express, expression of His presence. Where God's presence is, there His goodness is. Where God is... There his blessing is. Where God is, there his glory is. Because you can't separate the one from the other. You can't, you know, God is who he is. Where he is, those attributes that are of God will be present. So where he is, there his goodness is, his love, his blessing, etc. My question then is, what does God's goodness look like when it manifests? How would I recognize it? What should I be looking out for? So I have an expectation for God's goodness. What do I base that expectation on? Is it an, you see, an expectation that is based on a fallacy or a lie or a deception will only lead to disappointment. I'm sure you've experienced that in your own natural life. Maybe you expected something from someone and they just didn't deliver. It could be Something as small as you expected coffee and they brought you tea and you were disappointed because you felt like coffee. Now that's just a small, very minor thing. But what about when it comes to the things of God? We expect great and wonderful things from God. How, on what do we base our expectation? And I know you all know the answer to that one. We base it on the Word of God and we base it on the person of who God is. What God says is true and we believe Him and we trust Him. Why? Because He is God. Because He is good. It's based on who He is. But how do we recognize God's goodness? How do we recognize His, uh, His, His glory, His favor, His blessings? All right, what is our expectation? Is it just based in, for example, relief of, of whatever circumstance we may be finding? Is it an expectation that is a monetary one, which is a good. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Is it relational? Where do we find the basis of this expectation? 
How do we cooperate with that, with God's goodness once we begin to expect it? So God will give us a promise. He gives us his word. We read his word. We understand it. This is what God says concerning any given thing. How do I begin to take that, that promise, cooperate with that word until it comes into manifestation? One of my favorite passages of scriptures Scripture is John chapter 16, verse 33. I know you will have heard it before because I'm sure I will have quoted it to you numerous times in the past. And it says this, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I've overcome the world. And when Jesus says, in me you will have peace, what does he mean? He obviously doesn't mean physical peace or absence from war, no conflict in the world. What he's talking about is, first of all, peace with God, harmonious relationship with God. He also means to cease from striving. And this is really the essence of what I want to get to today. So often in our Christian walk, we, we strive to earn, we strive to believe, we try to work hard to make God's promises come true. We put effort into and, and think that, that if we try hard enough to believe, then our faith will grow. And so a lot of what we expect from God comes not through the goodness of who, is and who He is and what He has already done for us, but a lot of our expectation of God is based on our effort. So here he's talking about, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. So you will cease from striving, because you're now already in right relationship with God, and you will have inner rest. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but I be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. This is how the Amplified Bible says it. In the world you have tribulation and distress and suffering, but be courageous. Confident, undaunted, and filled with joy. Isn't that amazing? In the world you have, it doesn't, by, by the way, the, the, the actual translation of that, that verse doesn't say in the world you will have tribulation. He says in the world you have. You have tribulation. Every one of us can understand that. We have tribulation. We have trials. We have struggles. Some are financial. Some are health-wise. Some are stress or occupational related. We all have our own battles that we are facing. But then he says, be courageous, be confident, undaunted, and filled with joy. Why? Because I have overcome the world. And the Amplified goes on to say, My conquest is accomplished, my victory abiding. My victory abiding. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that everything that he has won and conquered through, through his life, through his victory over sin and death and hell and the grave and the forces of darkness, it is an abiding victory. There's never going to come a day when that victory, when applied, doesn't yield the fruit it ought to yield. God's victory is once and for all and forever. It is an abiding victory. So why is it that Jesus tells us to have good cheer when he's the one who's overcome the world? We can understand why he should have good cheer. He's overcome the world. He's seated at the right hand of God. I mean, he's up there. But what does he say to us? Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 6. It's a scripture we're probably all familiar with as well. It speaks of being seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But 
I want to read this portion of scripture to you from the Passion Translation. And in the Passion Translation, Paul writes the following, But God still loved us with such great love. He is so rich in compassion and mercy, even when we were dead and doomed in our many sins, He united us into the very life of Christ and saved us by His wonderful grace. He raised us up with Christ, the Exalted One, and we ascended with Him into the glorious perfection and authority. Now that's key. That's vital. We ascended with Christ into His perfection. In other words, no claim against us anymore. All sin wiped out. All unrighteousness, condemnation, gone, cleansed by His blood. Being made whole and righteous in Him with authority. In other words, His authority, the authority that He won in the heavenly realm. For we are now co-seated as one with Christ. So when Christ Jesus says, Sure, you're going to have tribulations, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. The reason that is good news to you and me is because you and I are seated in the same place of victory that Jesus Christ is. Folks, it's imperative that we begin to see ourselves this way. The more we see ourselves in the likeness of Christ, victorious with his authority at our disposal, the more we will lead lives of victory and success in this world and when I say success, I'm talking about kingdom success, victory over our circumstances. We're no longer going to be subject to them. We have authority to be impactors and changers of the circumstances around us, not just the victims thereof. And the reason this kind of hits home with me through some of the things I've been through over the past few years, and I, I trust it will hit home with you, is this. The reason we spend so much time in prayer Asking God, please do this, God. Begging God, please, Father, I need this. Will you do this? The reason we keep begging and asking God for things is that we do not yet have a revelation of what He has already done for us. God has already given us, the Bible says, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Another place the Bible says to us that every promise that God has given to us in Him, in Christ Jesus, is yes and amen. There is nothing lacking on God's part. The Bible says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. When you That position means a position of rest, a position of completion, where whatever He was supposed to have done, is done. When He hung on the cross, what were the last words He uttered? It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. My purpose fulfilled. Now his victory, as I've already said, is not just for him. It is for you and for me. However, most believers today, most of our prayer lives, comes from the point of view or from the place where we're not believing we have everything that Christ has already given us. We're not believing that God has already finished and completed the work that needed to be done. We are begging God to do things. We talk about waiting on God, but in reality, God is waiting on us. You know, as I was preparing to share with you this evening, that phrase hit me between the eyes. I've preached sermons on waiting on God. 
I've come up with a definition of waiting on God. I call it orientating our expectation towards Him. Now, while there's truth in that, there's a measure in that, I had a realization when I was preparing for tonight. And you know what that is? The realization was this. I cannot for the life of me think of a New Testament scripture that talks about waiting on God. And as I thought about that, something struck me. The only thing the New Testament tells us to wait for is the return of Jesus Christ. That's, yes, we have an eager hope, an eager anticipation for the return of Jesus for our glorified bodies. But in terms of waiting on God for Him to do something, that's just not there. That line of thinking is absent from the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, people had to wait on God. They, there was something that God needed to do. God needed to move on their behalf before something could, before there was breakthrough, before there was victory, before circumstances changed. I mean, if you look at Israel's deliverance from Egypt, they had to wait on, you know, God spoke to, to, to Moses. He intervened in the situation. He authorized Moses to go and do some things and he backed that up with his word, but that all began with God. We look at the signs and the wonders and the miracles. We look at the prophets that came through and all the incredible things that they did. Every one of them spoke about waiting on God, turning your heart to wait on God for his salvation. But I want to say to you, New, new Covenant believer, our salvation has come. Our salvation is fulfilled. It is complete because Jesus has risen from the dead. Amen? There is nothing more we need to wait for in terms of our salvation, in terms of our spiritual well-being, or in terms of any one of God's promises becoming applicable and relevant to our everyday life now. Back in the Old Testament, they needed a word from God to release authority for things to be done. I gave you the example of Moses. God spoke, released authority. Moses went, spoke to Pharaoh, and the ball got rolling. In other places... You see God sending people uh, to, with a message authorized by God and things happen. But as new covenant believers, we are part of a new, and the Bible says, a better covenant based on better promises. And one of the greatest things of this new covenant is that every promise, as I've already said, is in him is already yes and amen. In this new covenant, it's not about waiting on God to do something. We're not waiting for God as though He's holding out on us. We're not waiting on God patiently so that He, you know, when He, until He is ready to move. That kind of thinking is wrong, but I think that kind of thinking is still so prevalent in many of our prayer lives. God, please will you do this? God, please will you do that? Instead of seeing ourselves seated with Christ in heavenly places and beginning to use and exercise the authority that He has given us through His name, through the Word of God and through every promise that He has already given us. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 to 20. I'll read it from the Amplified Bible. It says this. This is right towards the end of His life. Jesus says to His disciples on earth before He ascends, He says, Jesus came up and said to them, All authority, in other words, all power and absolute rule in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Let's just pause there for a moment. There's one account in the Bible 
where the, where the Word of God says that Jesus marveled. Jesus was amazed. He was astonished. And that is the account of the centurion. Where the centurion comes to Jesus and he says to him, Jesus, I have a servant. He is ill. Please, would you speak the word that he may be healed? And Jesus said to him, sure, I'll come to your house. And he said, no, no, I'm not worthy that you come under my roof. All I want you to do is speak the word. I want you to release the authority. I too am a man under authority, he said. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to this one, come, and he comes. They have to do that because I carry the whole authority of Rome behind me. And when I speak, things have to happen in a certain way. I recognize you're a man of authority. So all I want you to do, Jesus, is say the word. Obviously, I'm paraphrasing, but you get the principle I'm trying to give. And Jesus stops and he marvels and he says, I have not seen such faith in all of Israel. He says, go, go your way. Your servant has been made well. So Jesus gives the word, authority is released, the servant is healed. We see a same principle working itself out here in the scripture, Matthew 28, 18. He says, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore. When you are commissioned by one in authority, it means that you carry the fullness of that authority on you or in you. When you go, you go in that person's name. The best example of this is when you see a policeman or a traffic officer and they come into the road and they put their hand up. You stop. Do they have physical power to make you stop? No, you could drive right over them. The reason you stop is because they represent authority. The state backs them. Now, when we go in the name of Jesus, in the, according to the word of Jesus, by the power and the authority of Jesus, we have the word of God back in us, the spirit of God back in us, all of the kingdom of God, all of heaven backs us. That's why Jesus says, go therefore, and this is what will happen. He says, make disciples of all nations, help the people, learn of me, believe in me, and obey my words. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, remaining with you perpetually, regardless of the circumstance, and on every occasion, even to the end of the age. Isn't that an incredible promise? You see, Jesus doesn't just authorize us. He doesn't just give us authority and say, yeah, go use my name. But he commissions, he says, go, and he says, I am with you always. I want to read this again. Remaining with you perpetually, regardless of circumstance, and on every occasion, even to the end of the age. Man, that is powerful stuff. Amen? That's powerful stuff. That means that you and I have been authorized by Jesus Christ himself to go and bring his kingdom and his rule and his authority to bear. Let's put this another way. Jesus, through our salvation with Jesus, he takes up residence in our hearts. Amen? He says, I am with you wherever you go. Now, if I go back to the point that I started out with, that where the presence of God is, there the blessing of God is, there the power of God is, there the glory of God is. In other words, all of those things are already residing within you and me and go with us wherever we go. Do you believe that? Do you believe that to be true? 
If that is true, what does that look like? What is the manifestation of that presence or that goodness or that power or that blessing or that favor look like? And some of us, sometimes we don't quite know how to answer that. And the reason is because instead of taking hold of that, believing that and beginning to learn how to walk in it, we are still praying, asking God to do that which he's already done for us. Asking God to show us his glory. Asking God to do things for us that he's already said, I've done for you. Let me read you another scripture out of Matthew. This time from chapter 18. 18 verse 18 to 20. Matthew 18. Assuredly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Let me pause there. The correct understanding of this scripture is to say this, wherever you go, whatever is already loosed in heaven, you can loose on earth. What already, Whatever is bound in heaven, you can bind on earth. So, let's talk about healing, for example. Is healing loosed in heaven? Has it been released from heaven? Yes, it has. Has blessing been released? Yes, it has. Has sickness and disease been bound? Yes, it has. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, whatever you bind on earth will be bound. Whatever you loose and release will be released. In other words, you take what that which has already happened in heaven and you bring it to bear. Jesus taught us how to pray. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, we bring the culture of heaven, the realities of heaven, into our natural world. Let me carry on to verse 19. He says, Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Isn't that incredible? What a promise. What is he talking about there? Talking about two people. We come into agreement. In agreement with God's word, we begin to loose, we begin to stand ground, we begin to release blessing, favor, provision, healing, whatever it may be. Peace, encouragement, strength. I mean, if you start looking at the promises that God has given us, if you start reading what that which the Bible says has been made available to you and I, your mind will boggle at the possibilities. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think God gave us an imagination for that very purpose. That we can see things through our mind's eye that will encourage our faith and cause us to reach out and to believe God for even more. He goes on to say, For, wherever t for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Now here we are gathered together in His name. He promises, Therefore, that he is there in the midst of us. So what does that mean? That means the fullness of his glory is with us. That means the fullness of his blessing is with us. The fullness of his hope is with us. Do you understand the, the point that I'm trying to make here? So my question is then, where is the manifestation of that? How does that begin to bring itself to bear? 
I want to take this statement just one step further in helping us understand and just really bring home the understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. As I've said, he says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. When we begin to understand the context that Jesus was speaking into, this scripture takes on a whole new life. Matthew chapter 16. So what I'm going to do here, I'm going to leave where we are here for a moment. I'm going to divert on a little bit of a rabbit trail here and I'm going to come back to where I was because I want you to understand a certain truth here that when you understand it and we come back to where we are, it will really kick us onto another level. Matthew chapter 16. Jesus is talking with his disciples and he's saying, who do men say that I am? And They respond to him and they say, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist. And Jesus says to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, Matthew 16, verse 16 to 18, You are the Christ. In other words, the Messiah, the awaited one, the prophesied one. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. What was the rock? The rock was the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. The rock wasn't Peter. The rock was the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. And he said, on that revelation, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the first thing I want to talk to you about very quickly is that is the gates of hell. What does the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it mean? Gates in the old, you've got to understand, in those days they had cities that had walls around them and they had gates. The gates existed for the protection of the inhabitants of the city. If the gates were intact, the city could not be plundered. So if the gates prevailed against an intruder, the city remained safe. So when he is saying that the gates of Hades will not prevail against this church, he's saying, we... They will not be able to hold us back from the fullness of everything that God has promised us. In other words, the enemy is not our problem. They will not be able to stop the flow of God's presence. And if they can't stop the flow of God's presence, they can't stop the flow of His healing, of His provision, of His blessing, of His goodness from manifesting. Amen? That's some good news right there, isn't it? So he says that the gates of hell, in other words, the resistance of the enemy, the power of darkness that is the Lord of this world, will not be able to prevail or hold back that which God has authorized and released. So I want to read that last verse again. And I say to you that you are, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. The word he used there for church is an interesting one. He used the word ecclesia. Why do I want to highlight that? I want to highlight that because there's something very important that in that in that word in that saying. The word ecclesia at the time was a common word. It was a commonly used word. It wasn't a new word. For you and me it's a new word. But there were connotations and expectations attached to that word that when Jesus said it people understood exactly what he meant. The word means it's made up of two words. It means of called out ones and it means who are called out to govern. I'm not going to go into all the, the nitty-gritty of that, 
But when he, when Jesus said, I'm going to call out, I'm going to, I will build my church, my ecclesia. What he was saying is, I will build my family, the called out ones, called out from this world to be mine and given rulership and authority to govern. That's what ecclesia meant. Now, it's, a, it's originally a Greek word, but the Romans latched onto this principle and they developed something that was called the Conventus Civium Romanorum. I hope I say that right, but I want you to understand what this means because if you understand the context, it sheds a whole lot more light on the scripture. When a group of Roman citizens, as small as two or three, gathered anywhere in the world, it constituted the Conventus as a local expression of Rome. Even though geograph uh, geography separated them from the capital of the empire and the emperor, their coming together as fellow citizens automatically brought the power and presence of Rome into their midst. That's what made one of the things that made the Roman Empire so powerful and so formidable. Wherever Roman citizens were, the power, they believed the power of Caesar was there, the authority of Caesar was there, and all of Rome was there to back them up. Now, once we, once we understand that Jesus was alluding to some of these things that were happening in those days, and we read Romans 18.20 again, we have a whole new perspective on what he means when he says, For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. You see, the people had a political governmental understanding of what that meant already because they were under Roman occupation. They understood the systems that Rome used. And Jesus used it as an analogy. He said, I'm going to build my church. And so that in the same way where you Romans come and you want to, you, you just ride roughshod over everybody and declare, you know, Caesar and, and the power of Rome, wherever you are, even if it's just two or three of you, my kingdom is going to work in a similar way, but it's going to be a lot more subversive. Instead of like the Roman Empire, you working from the top down to dominate and control people, my kingdom works from the inside out. It works in a subversive way, through the hearts of men. And through those men who are authorized to go in love by my name and in my power, the gates of hell and the resistance of this world will not be able to stand against them because they walk in an authority and they walk in a power which comes from the very kingdom of heaven. You think the power that comes down from Caesar is powerful and it's meaningful? It ain't got nothing on the power of God. It ain't got nothing on the authority of God. Jesus was trying to teach us that whenever we gather together in his name, that the power and presence of heaven would be available and in operation in our midst. The question I have, folks, is do we really believe that is true? And if we did really, we do really believe that is true, what should our gatherings then look like? Are we experiencing that when we come together? Are we experiencing that level of authority and release of the presence and the power and the goodness and the blessing of God? Why is it Jesus? Oh, this is why Jesus taught us to pray. Let your kingdom come, as I've already said. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Kenneth E. Hagen, in, in one of his books called The Triumphant Church, says this. God wants us to know 
we have victory over Satan in every context and circum in every contest and circumstance, even as Jesus had victory over Satan when he was on earth. We don't have to struggle to be victorious. We just need to stand our ground with the word against a defeated foe, according to what we already possess in Christ. Now, isn't that incredible? I hope that what I'm sharing with you today is is striking a chord. You know, it's sometimes you know I'm being a bit vulnerable with you. I've had a struggle with this, not not recently, but over the past couple of years, of just not seeing what I'm wanting to see, not seeing what I'm expecting to see. And it, it all culminated in a place, in a very dark, dark, very low place, where I was, you know, begging God, and eventually almost coming to the point of saying, you know, I'm praying and I'm asking, and I'm just not seeing any results, and I feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm, I'm just not experiencing everything I see promised in your word. And what was the reality? The reality was I had expectations but on God which were wrong expectations. I was waiting on God to move. I was waiting on God to do things. When in fact the truth is, God was waiting on me. The issue was my faith. The issue was what I believed. The issue was what I was able to step out and take hold of according to and by the truth of God's word. Folks, I want you to understand, I am not saying that this means we don't, this, this, we get into a place where we are now divinely impatient and God needs to move for us now and we demand things of God and, you know, God must now do and because He's already done and I'm not saying we become arrogant in the spirit. What I am saying is we need to stop begging God and pleading with God to do things that He has already done. We need to start believing His word and if we do believe His word, act as if it's true. We need to start claiming that which has already been given to us. We need to begin rebuking those things and those areas of our lives which are not of God, resisting the enemy, and he will flee from us as we submit to God and to his word. Too much time is spent asking God, begging God, please do, please do, when he has said, I have already done. It's time for us to stand on our faith, to stand on his word, with perseverance, with patience, because sometimes I agree and I acknowledge the, the manifestation is not always immediate. But when God speaks, when God's presence is somewhere, do we even have an expectation that it will manifest itself? Do we even have an expectation that he will move? Or are we just content to sit where we are, ask God to do something, and just wait? Without exercising any faith, without stepping out, without believing him, with expectation to see something shift, to see something move, to see something change. God has given us a place of victory. He has given us a place of authority in Christ Jesus. To what end? That we may continue begging Him and asking Him? No, that we may rise up into it. That we may experience the joy of our salvation. That we may work out our salvation the Bible says, with fear and trembling, and see God's goodness manifest, and see it come into fruition in our lives. You know, it's, let me, let me use another example, I don't know, let, let's see how good it is. When you learn to drive, the first thing you have to do, is you have to get a learner's permit, you need to get a license that says, you understand the rules of the road. Then you have to get into a car, and you have to learn how to make that thing 
work. You need to learn how to handle a clutch to drive a, a manual or a stick shift car. You need to learn how to engage the clutch and the, you need to understand how cornering works. There's so many practical things that you need to learn about driving. Now you can sit and tell me that you know how to drive a car because you've read a book on how to do it. But let's get in a car and see if you can actually do it. Amen? Faith is a lot like that. The church is full of people today who know a lot about what the Word of God says. But the Bible says that he who hears the Word and does not do it, deceives himself. In other words, I read the Word of God and I think I understand what it means. And I think that because I understand it, somehow it's going to be effective and, and, and working in my life. That's a deception. It's like reading a driver's, it's like reading a, a uh, reading a book on or a manual on how to drive a car and thinking you know how to do it. It's foolishness. This journey of faith, understanding and experiencing the promises of God for ourselves comes only as we get into that car and we start driving it. It comes only as we begin to take hold of those things that God is speaking to us of. Take hold of the promises of God. Believe Him for them. Step out in faith according to the Word of God. Change our confession. Change, do you understand what I'm saying? We begin engaging with God, with the presence of God, for His goodness, for His favor, for His blessing, for His presence to manifest on our behalf. To see that which we He has promised come into manifestation. That doesn't happen while we sit on the couch. It doesn't happen while we sit on church listening to a sermon. It only happens as we apply our faith through intimacy with Him and walk a journey with Him. It's wonderful to talk about the goodness of God and how God wants to, 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 to lead us into greater dimensions of that. I've been so encouraged. It's wonderful to talk about faith. But if all we're doing is talking, we're missing the point. We'll be sitting in the same place next year, still hoping for better things. Waiting on God to do them. And God is saying, my child, I'm waiting on you. Everything has been given to you. You have everything that you need. You're not waiting on me. I'm waiting for you to rise up and take hold of everything that I've given you. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.